Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 27th, 2021. I'm talking to you from San Francisco in Northern California. Although, of course, I'm not really talking to you from Northern California or San Francisco. You have no idea where I am. You're all watching, listening on the internet. And the internet is changing everything. Every headline today is about what the internet is taking away from us or bringing to us, what it's undermining, the problems that it's creating. Facebook, of course, is dominating the headlines today. The Washington Post um, talks about how Facebook stuff lamented, they, that's their word, uh, perverse incentives for media to make us dislike each other, I guess, more than we even do in person. Um, we have a, an op-ed in the Post suggesting that this Facebook scandal is bigger than any other. I've heard that one before. This Facebook scandal will no doubt be bigger than any other until the next Facebook scandal. Uh, it's not just Facebook, YouTube, Snap, and TikTok are in the hairs of regulators there in D.C. answering questions about how the Internet is changing everything, taking away our freedom, undermining our privacy. Um, even the royals, Meghan and Harry, uh, have been apparently the target of coordinated Twitter campaign. And the New York Times, the old lady, is reporting that... Um, the internet is destroying anonymity. Age checks are coming to the web. So we're losing a lot of stuff on the internet. And one person who has a book out about what we've lost on the internet, a hundred things, is Pamela Paul. She is uh, a New York Times person. She, in fact, is a very important New York Times person. She's the editor of the book review. So I guess she knows a lot about what the internet uh, has taken away from us. Uh, and I'm thrilled that uh, Pamela is joining us um, uh, from, uh, from uh, New York. Uh, Pamela, just a hundred things? I would have thought <laughs> well, it's a thousand things. <laughs> there are many things. There are many things. I had this enormous list. I think it, I got it to 212 and then to 168, and then I whittled it down into um, 100. But even within those 100, there are probably five or six things that you could point to. Um, you know, it depends on, on how you count it. Was there one thing in particular? Reading through the book, I got the sense that this issue of anonymity of privacy was really central to what we've lost, that we can no longer hide anymore. Is that fair? It's totally true. I mean, it's interesting. What I tried to do in this book is to take all of the arguments we've been making, because you could say that the internet has jeopardized many things from democracy to elections, to the economy, to the way in which the workforce um, is, you know, functions to um, our political system. There, there are so many things and many of them are very big and important. I try to take, even when looking at big issues like privacy and anonymity, to bring it down to a kind of daily life level to look at it through the lens of how we each operate um, from the moment we wake up often to 
our iPhone alarm and the moment we have difficulty falling asleep at night because it's really difficult uh, to unplug and look at it on a personal and interpersonal level. So when it comes to anonymity, for example, I think that that's something that obviously has major repercussions um, at uh, the national and international level for politics, for discourse. But on a personal level, it's really hard, for example, to be a teenager um, right now and be subject to anonymous threats, cyberbullying, even people not liking something that you post or taking something, uh, an, an image of you, a video of you and posting it or turning it into a meme without your knowledge. So all of those things um, are fueled by that anonymity and it affects everyone. Uh, Pamela, the, the generational stuff comes up a lot in your book. You have three kids and you sometimes bring them up. You don't give us their names or their photos or their ages. Uh, but do you think this is really a generational issue? Uh, you and I are of similar generations. We've both, I think, written books suggesting that the internet um, uh, has, 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 has not really benefited society. Is it just a problem with our generation that we simply ha can't come to terms with the internet and we remember a time before the internet? I don't think so, actually. I think that it's something that affects everyone. And I think, you know, what you often hear from young people, last night I did an event with someone who's 31 years old, is a longing um, for an earlier age, for some of the simplicities, um, some of the things that we all had, like being able to be in the moment, being able to be somewhere and really have no one know where you were, um, to not be tracked perhaps by your parents. Um, it's something I think that affects much older people as well. I think that it really, it depends on the age you are. And I also think that it's maybe we don't need to speak in terms of the generational uh, generalizations that we often do, like boomers and Gen X and millennial and silent generation and greatest generation. But really, it's more about at what time did you become um, digital in your life? At what point did your uh, life become online? And I think that is the kind of decisive factor in terms of how people react to the internet. As I said earlier, Pamela, you are head of the New York Times book review of its excellent podcast, which I listen to religiously. I'm not sure. Have you had Sebastian Junger? I know you've reviewed his book. Have you had him on the show? I have not had Sebastian. Okay. Well, you no. should get him anyway. I mean, you don't need me to tell you who you should and shouldn't have. But um, Junger was on my show. And, and of course, in his new book, Freedom, it's a book about escaping, a book about uh, walking down the West Co uh, East Coast corridor on, on, on a train track, being lost entirely. And we talked about the internet. He said he didn't allow his kids to have screens at home. He has younger kids. Um, you've written a lot about parenting. What is your advice to parents, particularly with younger kids who have to make the big decision about whether or not to allow their kids to have an iPhone or, or, or an iPad? Well, you know, obviously it's an individual decision and many factors go into that. I mean, there are children, for example, who might be on the spectrum or have a, uh, a reading challenge that makes tool, digital tools really important and effective for them. So I don't want to judge people based on um, what they decide. But I do think the most important thing to remember is that as the parents, it's our choice, right? It's not the kid's choice. Um, the parents do get to decide. And I also think another important factor to consider is that sometimes 
people talk about getting their children access to a cell phone, for example, and we call it a phone, but really what it, it's the internet. It's, it's a portable internet. Um, very few people make phone calls on it. So people talk about getting their kid a smartphone um, often because they say, well, I want to be able to reach my child at school or after school or for it's for pickups or this or that. And what's interesting about that language is that what the parent is saying really is that they want the child to have the phone for them, right? For the parent, because it's so much more convenient. It is convenient to be able to reach your child at any time of the day. And I think that for all of us adults as well, we're very digital dependent, um, relinquishing that control, relinquishing that access, relinquishing that connectivity is hard for us. But that's not really about the child. That's more about the parent. And I want to just say one other thing about the Sebastian Junger, um, because that interests me, the idea that he took this, you know, this, this um, trip to disconnect. I think that that's something that young people and people our age are really missing out on in the digital era, which is the ability to completely disengage from the internet and to be somewhere where you aren't in touch with people. I, it's so hard to imagine. Um, I don't know that I could take a vacation without bringing my phone along, even for a week. And yet one of the things that I did in my 20s was move to a small city in northern Thailand for a year where I didn't know anyone. And it was the pre-digital era. There was no internet where I was. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a flip phone. I didn't even have a calling card. And I didn't have a landline. So it was completely disconnected. And it was one of the most difficult um, and challenging periods of my life, but also fundamentally um, transformed my life, changed who I was and the way in which I approached many things from that point you know, on. So it was a really formative experience. And I think it'd be very hard to simulate that again, because even if you didn't bring a computer on and even you know with you, or you didn't bring a phone and you didn't do that, you would still know that it's there, right? You would still be able to get that information. You could go to an internet cafe. Um, you could connect if you wanted to. And it's, I think, impossible to imagine what it was like when you had no choice. You, you could not reach people. Yeah, you wrote a book called uh, Parenting Inc. And there's no doubt that it's not coincidental that we have the rise of the anxious, obsessive, neurotic parent uh, in the same age of the internet. And perhaps they're producing anxious, neurotic, pessimistic children. Do you think there's some truth in that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think I don't. Is the internet making us more anxious and neurotic? I don't know. <laughs> I think probably uh, there are a lot of factors, um, maybe even more fundamentally economic factors that drive us towards those emotions. Um, but I do think that you know, we spoke earlier about the revelations with Facebook and Instagram and some of the ways in which their tools work on the mindset and the well-being of adolescents. And that that data is out there. You know, we do know that um, using social media for many teenagers and tweens and, and even younger kids um, produces or increases their level of anxiety, especially if they're prone to anxiety, um, and also can kind of aid and abet unhealthy behaviors, whether it's, you know, disordered eating or, um, 
you know, other issues around self-image or social anxiety. So that uh, there you could probably say, well, the Internet certainly has something to do with that. Well, one troubling behavior, of course, is pornography. You wrote a wonderful book. I mean, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. You you wrote, I think, a very profound book on 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 the ubiquity of pornography in the earlier online age. In fact, when this show before Keen on, there was a show called After TV, which uh, Pamela, I don't know if you remember, you were on. Um, you don't talk that much about uh, in the hundred things we've lost to the internet about the impact of pornography, and I was somewhat surprised. Um, did you? Are you uh, are you sort of tired of, of thinking and writing about pornography? I don't know that I'm tired about it, but I do feel like I did that work in 2005. Well, the book came out in 2005. It actually, it stemmed from a 2003 story that I did for Time Magazine that was for a sort of special issue around, uh, around sex and sexuality and then expanded into a book. It's definitely been 15 years since I've done any research on it. And I feel like the conversation has um, moved on and the research has moved on without me. And I don't feel like I'm especially um, up to date on what's going Although on. I think than- your, your basic point about the ubiquity of online pornography and how it impacts children's a sense of their bodies, their sexual selves, and early sexual relations is, if anything, even more relevant today than it was in 2005. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's <laughs> there's the upside and the downside of being one of the earliest people to point something upsetting out because you're giving people a message that they don't necessarily want to hear. And I think that, you know, at the time that I did that reporting, um, you know, it was early days. And I think a lot of people were not wanting to necessarily accept all of the you know, the thing, the conclusions that I came to, at least through um, interviewing over 100 people about their experiences using online pornography or being in relationships um, with people who use pornography, um, men and women. And, um, you know, now I think it's probably a little clearer to people. Um, and if anything, obviously, the ubiquity has become um, much greater because at that point, even that more was ubiquitous. I don't know if you can get what what, what you, you're editor of the New York Times Book Review, so you know a lot about grammar. What what's ubiquity plus? Do we have a word for it? Yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, I guess it's if it's ubiquitous, it's ubiquitous. You can't get bigger, right? Than ubiquitous. You also right. wrote, and you've written a lot of really good books. Um, the Start of Marriage. You touch on relationships in the book. Uh, you talk about the inability to forget. So ex-boyfriends and girlfriends are everywhere. How do you think the internet and our focus on dating and the lack of privacy, how has that impacted on our ability to make and break relationships? Well, I mean, one of the things that I write about, so each chapter in the book is something that's been lost or that's been so fundamentally altered that it no longer exists in the way that we, you know, lived with for many, many years. And one of the things that's lost is the blind date. So, of course, you can still be set up on a blind date with someone. It doesn't have to all be through Tinder or OkCupid. Um, And however, when you go to the bar or the restaurant to meet that person or the coffee shop, you will already know exactly what that person looks like. And you will know all of the friends and contacts that you have in common. You will have seen that person's resume, 
all their social media feeds. Because of course, what are you going to do? You're going to Google that person and you're going to know all about them. You're not going to have to ask. Like, you know, it used to be when you would get set up with someone, you would know maybe the basics. Like, oh, this person went to college with my sister and he's a veterinarian um, and he's got brown hair. And then you might know like, oh, he says he's going to wear a blue sweater, but that's it. So you could ask all kinds of questions. Where did you grow up? Now you already know that. And so, yes, there are some pluses to it. You know, it probably prevents you from maybe going on um, a date that might not have been successful. And let's be honest, most blind dates are not successful, but it also closes you off um, to the possibility of meeting someone that you might not necessarily think you have something in common. And I think the fact that fewer people go on blind dates because they're using something like Tinder closes off the possibilities even more because we are essentially doing with dating that kind of narrow casting of like, I will, you know, get this down to a very precise definition of the kind of person that I want to get to know um, in the same way that we all, you know, tailor our social media feeds to only hear from the kinds of people we want to hear from. And it means that you might miss out on meeting someone and having a great relationship with a person that doesn't necessarily fit, you know, your preconceived notions of who you're supposed to be with. So it's a sort of a sexual or emotional echo chamber world. Do you think the internet has killed serendipity? There's been lots of debates about this, and I like that word. Um, I mean, you can still you can still sit next to someone on a, on an airplane. You can still bump into them in, in a store or a railway station. Surely serendipity still exists. It still exists, but I think we talk to strangers a lot less. I mean, look, I'm a bookish person. And so what I would do on the train, um, the internet, uh, sorry, on the train or on the, the on a, on a airplane often is look at what someone's reading and then maybe start yeah. a conversation around that. That's always of interest to me. But now, even if people are reading, they're often reading on a device where it's completely opaque. Um, but most of the time, and this is extremely well, you need to, to learn, me. as I, I do, you just need to lean over and, and, and be very rude and, and read what they're reading. I think that's, yeah, well, that's the, the bigotry in our internet age. They're on their phones. You know, it's like it's really, really uh, depressing to me to get on the train and see how many people are on their phones or like the doctor's office where people would either whip out a book or read one of the magazines. There are no longer any magazines in doctor's offices or dentist's offices. It's everyone is expected to be on their device. Um, so you'd lose, at least for me, that was one of the avenues into those kind of spontaneous encounters. You've put yourself, you, you've put your heart on. On the table, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. You wrote a book called How to Raise a Reader. And as you said, you're a bookish person. You judge people by the covers of their books. Um, and one of the, I think one of the most interesting and compelling uh, things you argue we've lost to the internet is the bookish boy. Uh, oh, perhaps yeah. you might remind us of that. Uh, argument. It, it it really resonated with me because yesterday um, I interviewed William uh, Souder, the author of Mad at the World, the award-winning book about the life of Steinbeck. And it really occurred to me that you couldn't have a Steinbeck in the internet age. He was the ultimate weird bookish boy who grew up to, to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. So how has the internet killed the bookish boy, Pamela? Well, look, let me just say, of course, there are still bookish boys out there. Um, but, but not many. I mean, that's your point. 
Yeah, there are far fewer. And so if you look at statistics, if you look at surveys, um, boys read much less often and fewer books a year than girls. Um, those are you know, national statistics uh, surveys that are done by Scholastic, the children's publishing company, um, if not every year, then every few years. And the numbers keep going down. Um, and this is something that educators have noticed, that parents notice. And one of the reasons is that the internet is great for curious cerebral boys. Um, and it's really fun. Everything, you know, many of the things that boys would seek out in a book, they can find online. You can find science fiction, you can find gaming, you can find languages in the form of computer languages. You can find, you know, lots of boys are fact finders. They like books that are um, more about like data collection and information than necessarily about narrative. And again, these are all generalizations. Obviously, there are many exceptions, but all of that, like that's exactly what the internet gives boys. So you're you're sort of feeding them um, something that is in many ways um, just as appealing, at least. And, and the internet is habit forming. We all know that because we are all on the habit. Um, we all have this habit. It's, it's very easy um, to adopt new technologies and to find yourself spending more and more time online um, that you used to use for other things, right? And each of us is giving up something, like whether it's gardening or um, volunteer work or reading or watching movies, like all of us have kind of ceded time to, from other things that we now spend online. Um, because that, that time doesn't come out of nowhere, right? There's only 24 hours. Right, and you're talking and about sleep. time. Uh, you, it's a very quirky book. I really enjoyed it. hundred things we've lost to the internet. Um, a few years ago, your New York Times colleague, Thomas Friedman wrote a book called Thank You for Being Late, which suggested he didn't mind people would be late because it gave him time to think or read. But you suggest that um, lateness is also a casualty of the internet. Tell me about the impact on of the internet on time and on lateness in a cultural sense. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Tom and I probably would agree. Like, it is kind of nice when someone is late because you you always have your phone on you, right? So you always have something you can do in that time. Um, you can, you know, use your phone to catch up on your email. It's sort of, it is found time when someone is late. And that actually gets to the very first chapter in the book, which is about boredom. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, I wrote an op-ed for the Times called Let Children Get Bored Again, um, that in my mind, the working title was The Lost Art of Boredom, because I realized like we are never bored anymore. Like there's no reason to be bored because you always have this little internet device that offers any manner of information, um, work, entertainment, connection, uh, you know, there's just, there's everything on there. So you don't have those down moments where you're just kind of staring out the window. I think the only time that I truly experience something akin to boredom is either I forgot my phone um, or I'm in the shower, you know, and, and one of the reasons why so many people have ideas and creative thoughts in the shower is because that is a time where your brain is forced to essentially go through the motions of something that we all know how to do. Which yeah, is we should take, so what you're saying is we should really take more showers. I remember my uh, editor at uh, Atlantic, Morgan Entrican, who I'm sure you know, he came up with a wonderful title for one of my books, How to um, how to Fix the Future. I said, where'd you get that? He said, I thought it up in the shower. So you're suggesting more showers and certainly no more devices in the shower, which will give us access to the internet. 
Yeah, I often think about putting like a pad of paper and a pen right outside my shower because that is when I have my ideas. And then you have to like dash out and, you know, and write them down before you forget them. Because, um, of course, one of the things lost to the Internet is our memories. Another thing you suggest is lost is empathy. Um, we had Sherry Turkle. I know you know her. She's I'm sure she's been on your show many times. Her new book, The Empathy Diaries. I've talked to Sherry. Great detail. She's not only a, a wonderful uh autobiographer, but she's also one of the most profound uh, thinkers on tech. But the E word comes up in practically every interview I do about anything, whether it's economics or, or, or our mental health. Where's your evidence that empathy has died? If anything, I think there's a, there's a new cult of empathy. Maybe it's, it's dead, but we certainly all want to resurrect it. We would like to resurrect it. I do think that it is um, severely compromised by the inter- many things on the internet. And I think Sherry's brilliant and right about everything. Um, there are, it's very hard to prove causation, right? It's hard to say the internet has led to a decrease in empathy, although there have been studies that have shown a general decline in empathy. And people will often talk about it, you know, in kind of vague terms, like a decline in civility, a decline in empathy. I, I think part you of believe it is also, that, I mean, you believe if there's been a decline too in civility, yeah. which I think is fairly self-evident from yeah, I mean, you know, even again, a minute on Facebook or, or Twitter. Yeah, I think it'd be hard, you know, as like a, for a social scientist to say this caused that, but there is definitely a correlation. And I do think that, that uh, they are related. Um, one of the things you mentioned early on was anonymity. And of course, it's really easy to be cruel to someone when you are going to be held responsible for the consequences of that cruelty. If you can insult someone and degrade them and demean them and attack them without any repercussions, well, then people are going to do that. And we have seen that social media tends to reward anger and negativity and that, you know, tweets, for example, that are angry or negative perform much better than ones that say like, wow, I really love, you know, strawberry ice cream. Um, And so you were rewarding that kind of behavior. And I think, you know, you only really have to spend like 20 minutes on, on social media to see that that's definitely the case. So I think that, um, you know, when you don't have to see someone face to face, there isn't as much empathy. It's a human, um, you know, that's a, Well, you say we could, we don't look each other in the eyes. You and I are talking and we're mostly agreeing, but we're not able to look into each other's eyes, which I think deepens uh, an intellectual conversation, obviously yes. a personal one. As and, well. and the emotional connection. And it's not just the eyes, it's the body language. It's the feeling that you get when you're in the room with someone. I mean, if you want to get like one object lesson and what you lose in an online only experience in terms of sort of leeching out the social and emotional, look no further than lockdown and the school experience that many kids in kindergarten, you know, from kindergarten, frankly, through high school experience when class got reduced to screens, which is to say that it was... 10% of the experience that they had had, you could no longer, you know, um, ha- you can no longer form a friendship with someone when you're all just squares, you know, in this like extended um, Brady bunch of faces on screen. How do you make eye contact with someone? How do you get to meet someone for the first time? Let's say your kid has moved to a new town and your first class is online. How do you get to develop your social and emotional skills if you're five or six years old? How do you get to feel like your teacher knows and understands you? How do you 
further and deepen friendships or romantic relationships, it's impossible to do that or close to impossible to do that. And then I think that, and then that's not even looking at the learning experience and how reduced that was. And we know that that was incredibly hard for students. Um, so I think that, you know, it's clear a lot gets lost online. Look, when I'm in a meeting at work, I am looking at a bunch of faces on a screen and they all look like they're looking at me, but they might not be. They might actually be in another window. They might be working on something else. They might be slacking with someone. They look attentive. Everyone turns their mics off. Of course, I hope they do. Meeting. I mean, there was that scandal of the CNN New York ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah be careful um... about switching your mics off these days. Uh, so what you're saying, I think, uh, Pamela, what you're clearly saying is we're losing something from our humanity, from ourselves. Um, we're losing something essential. But another of your arguments, which I think was really intriguing, which I agree again very wholeheartedly, is we've also lost the ability to be lost quite in a physical sense because of the ubiquity and ease of online mapping. What do we lose, Pamela, when we can't get lost? Oh, gosh, a lot of things. I mean, I, I, I wanted a couple of anecdotes around that. I mean, one is everybody knows the experience now. You put an address into Waze or, you know, into Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever your, you know, preferred system is. And you find yourself following some random trajectory to get to another place, thinking to yourself, like, surely... This is not the way that if I had like asked a friend or someone at the gas station for directions, they would have told me because you're on these obscure little back roads, right? And there's nothing there to accommodate someone who's trying to get somewhere, like meaning there's not gas stations and rest stops and restaurants and sort of roadside, the normal um, sort of businesses that that build up along um, routes that urban planners expect us to travel on. And so that's just really, that's incredibly interesting. And, and for people whose houses, you know, end up on a preferred kind of Google route that was not intended to be traveled by a lot of cars, like suddenly you find yourself living in this high traffic area that's just been optimized because it avoids traffic lights um, with cars suddenly going by on a street that your kids before maybe could bike on or play on without worrying about lots of through traffic. So that's one anecdote. And the other, you know, has to do with what you lose from getting lost, which is, I think, you know, obviously it's incredibly inconvenient sometimes to get lost. And um, it's much easier to get where we want to go when you always know how to get there. Um, but what we do lose is the serendipity, again, going back to your earlier word of sometimes finding something undiscovered, you know? And then what's crazy is that we've all lost the ability to read maps, to kind of uh, keep track of where we're going. So if, heaven forbid you lose your signal. I mean, everyone I think knows that frustrating experience of when your phone like doesn't quite, isn't quite caught up with where you are and it'll keep saying like sort of switching what it's saying and you'll be like, oh wait, I have to turn around. And you're like, oh no, I don't I have to turn around. It's kind of lost its signal. It doesn't know where it is. Um, we like, it's almost like we're losing our own ability to orient ourselves without having that, uh, the crutch of that device. You also say in the book that we're losing physical things. You, you had a, uh, an, an entertaining section on filofax, on vinyl records, on Scrabble boards. I kind of agree, certainly on Scrabble. I think online Scrabble is a disaster and physical Scrabble is, should have been core or was core to our civilization until the internet came along. 
But I'm not so sure about, say, the Filofax or vinyl records. Um, your, your newspaper had a piece recently about vinyl selling so well that it's, got, it's getting hard to sell vinyl. Now, uh, more money is made uh, uh, by vinyl sales in the music industry than, uh, than any other medium. And uh, the same is true of Filofax is doing pretty well. Moleskin notebooks are doing well. Hasn't the internet in some ways um, underlined the value of the physical? And that explains uh, the reification of, of, of vinyl or handwriting, especially amongst young people. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, by describing all these things, what I'm really trying to say is we have a choice, right? We don't have to upgrade. We don't have to adopt new technologies. We have the choice to go back to an earlier way. And, you know, even though some of these things are um, theoretically lost, they can be recaptured. And I think it is interesting, the resurgence of vinyl, the resurgence, you know, there's this app called Dispo that um, sort of recreates the experience of having to wait to get your film developed and not being able to edit it before that's you get it That's hilarious. Developed. I didn't know yeah. that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really popular with young people um, because, again, there was a kind of magic to that, right? There was a, a, a going back to that word serendipity and, and mystery to it. Like, what the hell is on this roll that I've had in my camera for three weeks and sort of slowly, you know, completed over time? So I think people do yearn to get back to that. One of the things that I think is so interesting about technology is that unlike a lot of other goods and services that are marketed to us. And if you look back through my books, really from the start of marriage, the pornified, the parenting, Inc., a lot of what I'm doing. And then here in this book, again, is looking at consumer culture and the way in which it uh, influences, impacts, and forms our lives. And with technology, it's one of the few things where if we do say like, oh, hey, like I don't actually want that app. I don't need to pay through Venmo or Zelly. I can just write a check or treat you to dinner and you'll treat me the, you know, the next time you can make these choices, but for whatever reason, and maybe it's just incredibly effective marketing on the part of the technology industry and big tech, we are not as skeptical about the marketing messages that we get. So when we're, when someone is trying to sell us, you know, a skin cleanser or an anti-aging, you know, device or um, a new car or a different kind of, you know, cut of jeans, we're skeptical. We're like, do I really need that? Is that truly necessary? Is that going to make my life better? Would I be just fine with the thing that I have? With technology, we tend to do that less because you're told that, well, if you don't adopt this new technology, if you don't upgrade to this new system, if you don't get the latest iPhone, then you're a Luddite, then you're sort of holding back, that you're not keeping up with the times. And it's such an effective message that I think we aren't as skeptical consumers as we are with other goods and services. I mean, all of this is really just a big business, right? They're, they're Even when it's something that is quote unquote free, like social media, we all know that it really isn't free. It's not free. There is a cost. Um, the cost might not be necessarily to us directly. The cost might be societal. The cost might be that there is no longer a fun downtown with little mom and pop shops because they've been kind of obliterated by um, the enormity of online retailers. Um, but there is a cost to all of it. And I think that what I'm trying to do in this book is to kind of get people to pause for a minute and think like, oh, wait, let's think about not where we're going and should I adopt this new thing and how did we get here, but what is it that we used to do before? And maybe 
we should have stuck with that. Or maybe I can recapture that in some way. Maybe I can get a vinyl record. Maybe I can even make a mixtape. So really the question is what we want. Uh, Freud, of course, famously wrote the book about what women want. Mark Zuckerberg's trying to figure out what young people want. Your newspaper has a piece about this today, about Facebook wanting the young people back. They seem to be fleeing like the rest of us, I think, from Facebook, from a sinking ship, like rats, perhaps. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, I think, believes that young people want the metaverse, whatever that means. What's next, Pamela, when it comes to technology? Is the metaverse for real, this this world of virtual reality where we just simply live on the internet? Or is the future a little bit more complicated? Well, you know, earlier you called the New York Times the old lady. I think you meant the gray lady. Um, but oh, um, yeah. old lady is uh, the Italian football team, Juventus. I apologize. <laughs> but I am an old time journal, old school journalist, and then I, I don't feel like predictions is really my 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 job or my forte. So I don't really know what's next. But one of the things I think is interesting is that when you raise that issue around young people in Facebook um, to people who report on Facebook and say, well, if if the kids aren't using Facebook, why is it still doing so well? Because in the face of all of this criticism, if you look at the numbers, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, they are all gaining users. They are still doing quite well, um, and they're doing well with advertisers. And what I'm often told is you're thinking just about, you know, where you live in America and your particular slice, and maybe the kids aren't using it there, but there are countries around the world where everyone uses Facebook, where these social media entities are um, omnipresent to, to upgrade it from ubiquitous. Um, and, uh, and so I don't think that it's, you know, as far as I understand it, the companies aren't really threatened at this point, um, in terms of being, you know, in, in terms of being viable businesses. I think that ultimately, um, what would threaten them is either some form of greater form of regulation, or if their economic model doesn't work. Um, and that—that that I think is the reality. What we can do as individuals, right, is just make a choice about the extent to which we want to use them. To figure out, well, in what ways does this form of technology work or not work for me? And to make, just make a more informed decision about how we want to live our own daily lives, so that we're not as controlled by it as you know. I think. Look, I'm as guilty as anyone, as as we all are. Well, perhaps your next book, Pamela, will be about how to fix the future, or certainly the digital future. This new book, A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet, is really a um, very, very entertaining, amusing, provocative. I didn't agree with all of it, but I agreed with most. Probably I'm as reactionary as you, or certainly in a generational context, reactionary as you when it comes to digital. Uh, as I said, you are the um, editor of the of uh, and I can get it right now the the gray the gray lady right yes. or the, the book review of the gray lady I don't know if that's the gray book review uh, you're also um, the author of buy the book which is a book about books and you're as bookish as anyone as you can tell from the books behind you in your New York uh, apartment in addition to your new book a hundred things we've lost to the internet Pamela without wishing to piss off people who are going to be on your show or reviewed in, 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 in the book review, what else should people be reading these days? Oh, gosh. What should people... I don't want to say what people should be reading. I can tell you some things that I've really enjoyed and appreciated. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to bring up three books that I think really touch on our current moment. Um, 
as, uh, as difficult as our current moment is, two fiction and one nonfiction. So I really enjoyed and appreciated Katie Kitamura's novel, Intimacies, which came out earlier this year, um, which I think uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult novel to describe, and it's a short novel. I will just say, read it and you will not regret it. Um, nonfiction book I would recommend is Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed which looks at the way in which this country tells its own story around the history of slavery and the legacy of racism um, in this country. And I thought it was really well done. And then a third book that is fun, um, moving and sad also, um, coming out next week. Uh, but I can talk about it because it's already gotten a great review, a very uh, positive review in the New York Times by our critic Molly Young. And that is Gary Steingart's uh, new novel, Our Country Friends, which uh, people are calling sort of the first big pandemic novel. Um, and it, it's more than that. But I do think it really does speak to the current moment. Yeah, Gary Steingart, was, I need to get him on the show. He was on my show several years ago. He's not only a great writer, but a great interviewee. As um, Pamela Paul, you are. Congratulations on the new book, 100 oh, Things We've so Lost to the Internet. Thank you so much, Pamela. And um, we'll have to have you back on uh, on uh, Keen On, on Lit Hub, to talk more about books and how uh, the internet is changing everything. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.